Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's. When you need snacks for game time, you need Trader Joe's. You'll score with interesting munchies like gochujang almonds and cornbread crisps and snacks like mango sticky rice spring rolls, all at prices that make you the winner. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman after a extremely eventful weekend of college football. Two huge upsets and also a coaching change, Bruce, that it's not exactly surprising, but it did finally happen. The big news, as you alluded to, came down. It was on Sunday. Butch Jones is out of Tennessee. We would have expected this because they have just really backslid off the college football radar at this point. And for me, you know, looking at it, I was there his first spring where he inherited, you know, just not much from Derek Dooley. The program was was really dreadful at that time. It had been it's been a chaotic roller coaster ride for Tennessee fans the last decade. You look at the tail end of, of Phil Fulmer. That was really a mess. Then Lane Kiffin came in there and it was a complete grease fire for a year. And then he bolts and they get Derek Dooley, get a little excited. And that's a disaster. And then Butch Jones comes in, starts to build and build and seems like he's going on the right track. You thought there was a chance last year could have been the breakout year. It did not happen. And then they really fizzled. And then this year, you know, I, just looking at it, it just seemed like the harder Butch Jones tried, the bigger the hole got that he was sinking in. It just seemed like by the end, he was known more as a punchline. He was known more for Champions of Life and Five Star Hearts and that trash can, which uh, – could have gone one of two directions, the way the turnover chain has blown up at Miami or the way that thing got made fun of and died so quickly. Um, I, I don't have a great answer for what went wrong other than last year's team was the team that was poised to, at the very least, win the SEC East. It grossly underachieved, and it just went downhill from there. I mean, if hindsight is twenty twenty, and I know it is, but I think the, the biggest mistakes probably Butch made – he had a couple of offensive hires the last couple of years, uh, and I don't think they they did not they proved to be just bad fits, and it didn't work out. He needed to find a jolt. Whereas James Franklin got Joe Moorhead, and that worked out great for Penn State, which was it was una, was unable to really get it cranked up. And it was interesting. I thought about this earlier today. Is if Butch Jones had left or been forced out at the end of last year, where he's had back-to-back top 25 seasons after going to win five and then seven and then wins back-to-back nine and fours, I think he would be looked at a little differently in terms of his coaching future. Whereas now, it's like it was an awful, you know, just real dud of a season. He's 0-6 in the SEC. They get they pull the plug finally. And the analogy I would have, it's almost like if you go to a restaurant. And you kind of like the uh, the appetizer, and then the, the entree's decent. 
And then all of a sudden you get dessert and it's like, oh, I don't know about this. And then all of a sudden they spill hot coffee on your lap. That's what Owen six was. It was rodents running around the floor and the <laughs> health inspector coming and shutting it down, something like that. But I appreciate the creative analogy. It's just been really three straight bad hires for Tennessee since, since when they ran off Phil Fulmer in 2008, you know, Lane Kiffin, who knows, maybe if he'd stuck around for more than a year, things would have taken off like they're taking off at FAU right now. But as it was, that was a one-year disaster that set them back. I don't know what they were thinking with Derek Julie, other than he was about the fourth or fifth choice of a very rushed uh, search, and, and that was a debacle. And I understand, you know, Butch had had at least a little bit of success at Cincinnati, which was at that time in the uh, the Big East, a BCS conference. But obviously this Tennessee job was, was too big for him. And so I think that's why it's imperative that John Curry, and I know this is not going to be an easy thing to pull off, I really think he needs to be able to land a proven head coach at the Power 5 level because that's what you're going to need to go into Tennessee and compete at a level that the fans expect when you're also going up against Georgia, which I think is, regardless of this past weekend in one game, obviously heading in the right direction under Kirby Smart. Florida will be rebuilding at the same time as Tennessee um, and probably has the ability to get its, its choice of coaches before Tennessee. So, I mean, am I crazy? Can they get a guy who, for instance, Dan Mullen, I know he gets mentioned for Florida a lot, but if that's not their guy, I mean, there's no question. The guy has run an SEC program and and won a lot of games and produced star quarterbacks and I think there would be no questions about his qualifications if you were to take that job. Yeah, I think that would be a good hire. I don't, I mean, I think Chip Kelly would probably be a more impressive hire, but if you look at what as you said, and to me that is the hardest job in the SEC West and he's had a really good run and look, they they gave Alabama all they could handle this past weekend. I think for all the reasons you said, you know, knows the SEC has recruited, you know, talent there and obviously has developed quarterbacks. And that's for a program that has been very suspect on offense. Those are all positives. You know, I've reported a couple of times in the past, Dan Mullen interested in such and such or as a candidate. And, you know, you hear this anger, you know, pushback from Mississippi State fans. Well, the reality is he did interview for Miami twice. He didn't get the job, but there was interest. Now, would he leave for Tennessee? Here's the thing. Mississippi State, he's making $4.5 million a year. That's obviously getting paid very well. Tennessee could probably pay him $6.5, maybe even more than that. Tennessee's facilities are considerably better. Certainly their stadium is a lot, lot better. The question, and I will throw this back at you, is Dan Mullins had two top 25 finishes in nine years there or eight years there. In the last five seasons, he's averaged less than eight wins a year. His record in the SEC is 500 over that time. He does all that at, at, in Starkville, and they love him. He'll be one of the best coaches they've ever had there, and they're going to love him for a long time. He does that in Knoxville and averages less than eight wins and is 500 in the SEC. He won't be there any longer. They'll fire him. Do you think Dan Mullen is going to say, you know what, sign me up. I'm going to take a big swing at the at, at a bigger program job, or is he is he more inclined to go, you know what, that job's not that much better, and I like the situation I have right now compared to that, and it's not Florida. I don't think it has the upside Florida does. Well, I think Dan Mullen has an ego. I think we know that. It's been rumored to be 
one of the reasons maybe he hasn't gotten a job like Miami before that can rub people the wrong way, and I'm sure he believes he would win a national championship at Tennessee. I have no doubt in my mind he believes that. So unless he thinks there's some kind of foundational or infrastructure reasons why you couldn't get it done there, I think it would be very appealing. You know, it's also a great time for him to make that move. His stock's going to be high. I think they're going to finish 9-3 and three here. They obviously came very close to upsetting Alabama the other night. But the question is, is that who Florida wants too? You know, you hear conflicting things about that. Oh, yeah, they definitely want to go after Dan Mullen. No, they actually prefer Scott Frost. Maybe Chip Kelly's in the mix. But it would be it would stand to reason that the two schools in the SEC East would be going after some of the same guys. And I would agree with you that if somebody has an offer from both Florida and Tennessee, they're going to take Florida. I think we should talk about... Mattresses. That's right. What's the most important thing to, to a healthy life? Getting some good sleep. So we're very excited about a new sponsor here at the Audible, and that is Lisa, L-E-E-S-A. Lisa mattresses are so comfortable. Bruce, you and I both got them this past week. They both arrived at our door. We've both had a chance to try them out. Lisa is a really cool product. And first of all, this is without question one of the best promo code offers we've ever been able to deliver on this podcast. If you go to lisa.com, and that's L-E-E-S-A, lisa.com slash audible, you will get $100 off a new mattress. That's a great deal. And so it is a direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious, and we'll get into that in a second. But So I, my first thought was, well, how do you, how do you ship a mattress? If mattresses are enormous. Well, they're able to compress them into a box. It shows up at your door like any other UPS package, easy to get out of there. It's driven by a mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody. And here's the really cool thing. Lisa donates one mattress to a shelter for every 10 that they sell through their 110 program with over 22,000 mattresses donated already. I mean, you get a new mattress and you get to help contribute to a really worthy cause. Yeah, it's a very, very cool deal. I think that you know, when we first heard about this, it was like, wow, this this is pretty awesome. And then, as you said, the the deal itself, this is as good as we've we've had the opportunity to talk about anything. Again, lisa.com slash audible, you get $100 off. I should also mention all of their orders are available online with free shipping. And they offer more than the mattress. They now have the Lisa pillow, blanket, foundation, and frame. So go to lisa.com slash audible and get $100 off of a brand new mattress. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, I think, how this plays out. Florida's recruiting pool is just much better. Uh, Facilities-wise, Tennessee probably is in better shape than than UF is at this point. You know, to me, the one home run hire guy out there, and while we're talking about Tennessee, you know, look, John Gruden's name, you ask Tennessee fans, you ask people around the Tennessee program, they think John Gruden is a viable option that they may be able to land, that they're going to throw a lot of money at. Um, I'll believe it when I see it, that he would take that. But for, to me, Chip Kelly's the one guy who's the home run hire. I mean, he won very big at Oregon, 46-7. and seven. To me, he's the best offensive mind in all of football. And I think you have a lot of name recognition. And if he could get some of the players that he got to Eugene, Oregon, I think he would be able to do a lot of damage if he's in Gainesville. I, my guess is... Tennessee is probably too much of a fishbowl place for him, and I don't think that's his speed. 
but we'll see. I mean, and that could affect, you know, look, you got Scott Frost as his protege, great system, is doing really well at UCF. You know, I think there's there's a lot of carryover in those. And there's also some carryover to the Nebraska job, which we, we assume is going to come open with some of these guys, too. Can I just say one quick thing about John Gruden? Why? It's your podcast, too. <laughs> why, why do Tennessee fans continue to think he's the, he's the salvation? He is very famous. He has a Super Bowl ring. He has been out of coaching for nine years now, and he hasn't been on a college staff since 1991. I just said earlier I think they need a proven, sitting college head coach. That, to me, is a much better, not, nothing's guaranteed, but that's a much better indicator of future success than, well, this guy's on Monday Night Football, and he's married to a Tennessee cheerleader, and he does those cool QB camp things in the spring. I, I think, frankly, that would be just making a hire for all the wrong reasons, if it's even remotely realistic, which I seriously doubt. You know, it, to me, it would be an interesting experiment. This isn't Jim Harbaugh coming back to college because we know, you know, this is I, I'm agree with kind of a lot of what you're saying. Jim Harbaugh won and turned Stanford around. You know, we don't know what John Gruden could do. My gut is John Gruden, if he was a college coach, would be a really good recruiter because he is exceptional. He's exceptionally charismatic. He's got a big, big personality. I think there's a lot of recognition with with players from what they've seen on Monday Night Football and commercials and everything like that. I think he would walk into a room and if he works at it and we know his work ethic is supposed to be, you know, off the charts, like most well off the charts. But then again, most coaches are that way. But I think that he would have a he would have a chance. But you're right. There's no guarantees how well it will work out. And I think what he probably has to weigh in his mind on some of this because he's already getting paid a fortune. Yeah, Tennessee may be able to throw $10 million at him. He's not that far off $10 million now when you talk about what he's getting from Monday Night Football and the endorsements he has connected to it. So does he look at it and go, and I know he knows Butch Jones pretty well. They spent a lot of time together the previous couple years. So he knows both the positives and the negatives that come with that job in Knoxville. Does he sit back and go, you know what, do I want to deal with all the rules and the 20-hour rule and then the recruiting issues? Stu, whenever I go to the combine and I run into a former college assistant coach who now is in the NFL, invariably it comes up. You know what the best thing about my job is? Come in July or June when I'm sitting by the pool, I don't have to keep looking at my phone to find out, oh, some kid decided to take an official visit. He's in, in town. Or do I have to worry about like my my best linebacker or best you know, wide receiver got into a bar fight last night. You know, those issues are not things that coaches like dealing with. And I think that, especially if you're in the NFL, and I think that's something that may potentially maybe like John Gruden say, if I want to get back into coaching, do I want to get back into college coaching? And I'm not sure about that. Should we talk about some games that took place on the field this past weekend? All right. So, Stu, now you, you talked about the games, alluded to it. What a wild night it was from that. Now, first of all, just thinking back, at one point it would look like there was a real good chance that we would have the top three teams going down. I mean, and it's I guess we should say it really started, I don't know if I'm asking for too trouble by bringing this up, but it really started on Friday night. Because if you're Ohio State or one of these other teams or Wisconsin where you needed some help or it looks like, especially if you're Ohio State, you need a lot of help. What started on Friday night with your Stanford Cardinal, your team in your backyard, dumping 
the top dog in the Pac-12, the Washington Huskies. And I just don't know really how that happened, given that you've been telling me all season how awful Stanford is. And I'm not saying how awful they, they are. They were able to knock off. Bryce Love was able to run for 166 yards and three touchdowns against the number one defense in the country. I have to say this hey. delicately because of where you work, but it's a shame that don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. <laughs> okay, I know where you're going. Yeah, most of the country yet again did not see that performance, in particular the first quarter. But I was there along with Chantel Jennings from the All-American, which speaking of promo codes, as you know, if you heard the last episode, go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and you can get 25% off a subscription to The Athletic or my site, The All-American, with a seven-day free trial. Bruce, I was at the game, and I got to say, I was pretty pessimistic that Stanford would have any chance there because you've seen how badly their offense has been struggling, especially in the passing game. You're going up against the number one defense in the country. And Stanford's defense is good, but maybe not as good as it's been in years past. And obviously, Washington brings to the table Jake Browning and, and a good running game and Miles Gaskin. But give them credit. The defense shut Washington down over the second half of that game. And K.J. Costello... Uh, finally, David Shaw's finally put his trust in K.J. Costello. They made some big plays in the passing game. It was kind of surreal, frankly, to watch. I felt like I was at a bit of a... Of a dis- How do I put it? I, I'm standing on the field afterward, and the quietest, most polite field storming in the history of college football is taking place with about, I don't know, 50 Stanford students running onto the field to celebrate. But for the Pac-12, this was not exactly a happy occasion. They are out. They are out, I think. You know, one thing, just go back to for Bryce Love for a second. There was a part of that game because it took him a bit to get rolling. He was in and out of the game. You know, the ankle was banged up. At one point, it looked like, yeah, I don't know if he's going to be able to finish this game. Yeah. And then he took a sweep around the right side, and I want to say gained maybe like 22 yards. And from that point on, it was like he was warmed up and he was ready to go. And he just was rolling, I thought. You know, Stanford, what is it, Horrible Harry? What's what's Phillips' nickname in there? Harrison um, Phillips? Yeah, what's his, Horrible Harry or something? There's a, they have a nickname for him, but he was a dominant player. That looked like Stanford, you know, what, what kind of we had seen. It's just weird because I want to kind of fold that into this. So they're all over the board. Ohio State, all over the board. We, had, we saw Ohio State two weeks ago, just get blown out by an unranked Iowa team. And then my game, they crushed Michigan State. How surprised were you by that? Because you had just seen Michigan State knock off Penn State in person the week before. Now you're watching Ohio State just destroy them. I was a little surprised, but I was not shocked because of this. I was a little surprised because Michigan State has all these Ohio guys, all but L.J. Scott, their running back were not recruited by the Buckeyes. You know, and I talked to Joe Bocci's dad. He's uh, Joe's a linebacker, a really good player, one of the better linebackers in the country. You know, grew up a Buckeye fan. The whole deal, the whole room was Ohio State. And then, you know, now he won't wear red, he told me. And it's just, you know, so you have a lot of guys with a lot of chip, on, big chip on their shoulder. And into the game, you know, we reported this before kickoff. Ohio State was going to be out with, with their two leading tacklers, or two of their leading tacklers at linebacker. Both had uh, were in concussion protocol, so it was like, okay, how's this defense going to hold up? Brian Lewerke, the Michigan State quarterback, was playing great. You know, you don't know what you're getting from JT Barrett. Two weeks earlier against Penn State was nearly flawless, and then the week before, the week after against Iowa was terrible. 
And this was the Buckeye team that looks like they could beat anybody if they if they're motivated. And they were and Michigan State for the first time in a long time look like the really young team they are. It reminded me of two years ago when they lost that game to Michigan State and and you know, the the whole season you know, was it going to be a disappointment? They weren't going to make the playoff. And they went out to Michigan the very next week and, and played their best game of the season. It seemed like that kind of rebound factor. And the question now is, can they keep it up going forward? Because obviously going to play in Ann Arbor the last week. If they make the Big Ten title game, they're going to play Wisconsin. Wisconsin could be 12-0. and We'll see after Michigan this week. Let's I say never this. in a million. Let's, okay, go ahead. Let's say this. Uh, let's say they play similar to how they played against the Spartans. And they thump Michigan 31 to 14, and then they beat Wisconsin 27 to 7. Does it matter what else is going on, or are they in at 11 and 2? Well, it matters what's going on. First of all, it's just insane to me that this is even a conversation after the Iowa game. There was no chance this team would even be in would be in contention for the playoff, and yet, you know, I do in the in the Ford Pass every week. I do the projected my new projected New Year Six, and I have never spent more time typing and erasing and redoing it and trying again because there's just so many different you know variations of how this could play out but at the end of the day yeah Ohio State ended up as the four seed if as in my example you've got I've still got Alabama winning the SEC 13 and 0 uh, Oklahoma is a two seed Clemson winning the ACC and I went back and forth on that with Miami a million times and we will get into Miami in a second who's left at that point you're talking about Two loss at best, Pac-12 champ. Your Notre Dame's not in the picture anymore. Some people have suggested that if Alabama were to win the Iron Bowl but lose in the SEC title game, we're back into the two SEC team scenario. I just Which think by the process of elimination, it's going to be Ohio State because they're going to have so many good wins. Yeah, the, the 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 weird one, and it's you suggested one part of it with Alabama. The other one is. They, they lose the Iron Bowl, then they don't get to play Georgia again. So instead, they're 11-1 and one as opposed to 12-1. and one. My gut is it will be hard for the committee to turn down a one-loss Alabama team. Now, their resume is not going to be that great because yeah. right now their, their best win is last weekend at Mississippi State, and then after that it was home against, against LSU. And neither one was like a blowout performance. I mean, they had their hands full with both. So... You know, what are we looking at here? Well, you're, I mean, absolute, it- you're absolutely right in that if they lose the Iron Bowl, which I'm now going to and I'm very excited about, so then your SEC champ is either Auburn or Georgia and they're in. On the one hand, you'd say, of course, they're going to take 11-1 Alabama. It's Alabama. But you got to have some sort of resume to speak of. And the wins are going to be Mississippi State, LSU. Neither of them are going to be very highly ranked. And that's it. And also, while as dominant as they were for the first nine games, you know, you saw a team that is suffering from injuries, who has given up nine sacks in the last two games that was mortal in that Mississippi State game, if they turn around and lose to Auburn, why would I believe at that point that they're still one of the four best teams? Yeah, and I mean, to to clarify, to add a little context to it, I think if you're an Alabama fan, you have a much better hope if you win the Iron Bowl and lose to Georgia. Because then at least you add that Auburn win to your resume. If you lose, you don't even have that. Then, you you know, you have, as Stu just said, you just have Mississippi State and LSU. And 11-1, and one, I don't think cuts it. 12-1, and one, maybe? I don't know. 
I don't know, though. The one example that somebody, people brought up on my story that I had to really think about is if it's 11-2 and two Ohio State with a bunch of good wins, but that awful Iowa loss on there, 11-2 and two Pac-12 champ USC with that awful Notre Dame loss on there, they wouldn't have the wins. They wouldn't have an, a Penn State win or... Um, or certainly a possibly beating a 12 and 0 Wisconsin. I just don't think that's in the in the cards unless there's even more, you know, a two loss Big 12 champ. A lot of a lot of chaos elsewhere. Yeah, I mean it's it's going to be fun because you know there's going to be a curveball into this. I mean we don't know what we're getting in the in the Big 12 to be honest. Uh, we don't know, you know, Miami Clemson how that'll shake out. I, I do want to ask you one thing because we're, we're talking about Auburn a little bit. You know, for all the talk about, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, all the talk about the Heisman race with it being Baker Mayfield and and the three or maybe the four running backs who are in that pack with Saquon Barkley, Bryce Love, uh, Josh Adams, and Jonathan Taylor. I mean, those guys have been consistently in my top five at some point. The guy who probably has the best chance to, if Baker Mayfield stumbles, to actually win the Heisman was nowhere near that discussion, and that's on Johnson from Auburn. I mean, he ran all over a really good defense against Georgia. He has the Iron Bowl against Alabama. And then you have another shot against Georgia where the whole country is watching this. And even more importantly as this, and this is probably too far in the weeds for me to you know go through, but, you know, as the Heisman voting block is what it is, I mean, he's the guy in the SEC. If yeah. he goes off on a tear, he's going to be the one who's going to have a lot of votes where some of these other guys, and I don't think it's the case with Baker, because I think Baker's clearly, if you're in the Big 12 country, the guy over you know Mason Rudolph or anybody else. But I think he has a chance to, to make it interesting if Auburn can go out and, uh, and kind of close the deal. Well, this stretch that Auburn's closing with, first they beat number one Georgia. They, they destroyed them. Like you said, Karen Johnson, Georgia had not given up anything remotely close to that on defense. Now you're going to turn on play who will now be the new number one team in the committee, Alabama. And if you win that, you're going to play Georgia again, very highly ranked. I mean, that's about as tough a closing stretch as you could ask for. And if he, if they win all those games, and that is a, we are not close to that happening yet. And he continues to play well. You're right. He would, he would, it would be a lot like Trey Mason in 2013 mm-hmm. uh, and the surge he had at the end. But he really kind of came out of nowhere. He wasn't in anybody's conversation. At least Karen Johnson had been starting to pick up. I was actually surprised. It's, it's weird. We always end up going down the Heisman Road, and I'm not sure. I think you and I may be more interested in it than the listeners, but uh, I was surprised in the All-American straw poll this week. It's Mayfield and Love, and then it's just a whole bunch of other guys, but the third-place guy actually was Lamar Jackson. Uh, I was a little surprised he's back in it already. Yeah, and I've seen a little bit on my Twitter feed of, you know, you're not giving Lamar Jackson enough credit. And maybe I'm not just because Louisville has been pretty mediocre this year. And I honestly, um, you know, I just think that sometimes you, you stop paying t- attention if the program kind of tails out of that top 25 and has some bad losses. When's the last time you think you watched a Louisville game? Oof, good question. Um, End of the Florida State game is the la- I saw that. This makes the point, though. I mean, if we're going to vote for him, it would be purely off stats and knowing that they're similar, if not better, than to what he did last year. Just not watching him like we did last year when they had those big games against Florida State, Clemson, uh, and, and so on. So do you think 
So after what Auburn did the other day, clearly his team has gotten a lot better. Do you think they will beat Alabama? You know, I think Alabama is really vulnerable right now. I, I watched that game against against LSU, and LSU ran the ball on them pretty well. And I know Darius Geis is a stud, and that's a good system Matt Cannon has. But that's that LSU team starts two true freshman offensive linemen. That is that is a really young group, and for them to do as much damage, and you know, they did do damage because Alabama came out of that really beaten up physically, and we see it now. They're injured and. You know, the way Auburn's playing, I'm still not ready to pick against Nick Saban's team, but I, they look way more vulnerable vulnerable to me now than I ever thought they would be in an SEC game. And so, that includes really against Georgia. So I agree 100%. I, I think any – I remember when, when the injuries first you know happened in the game two weeks ago, people were like, oh, it's Alabama. They'll, they'll just plug in the next star, five-star and be fine. Well, no, at some point – even Alabama is going to get to the point where you're putting in guys that just aren't ready. And Nick Saban, you know, referred to that. But Nick's, I think, so in 2013, the kick six game, nobody thought Auburn was going to win that game. It, everybody assumed Alabama would roll. Auburn had just, you know, they were the lucky team that year. They, weren't, they hadn't done anything like they just did to uh, Georgia. So this is a, not the same scenario. If you heard Nick Saban's comments after the Mississippi State game, it wasn't, uh, we've got issues, we're so concerned. It was, I'm thrilled for the players. They got this experience of pulling out a close game. We're going to help them get better. Like, I feel like this is set up now perfectly for him to be like, guys, we're Alabama, and yet a lot of people think we're going to lose to Auburn. What, what ends yeah. up happening then? I mean, if you're a betting man, which way are you leaning? I can't, I can't, if I'm a betting man... And I don't know what the spread is, but just in terms of who will win, yeah, I really like Auburn. I just yet can't yet bring myself to to to, to pull the trigger on that. I just you know, like I just said, I think Saban will have them ready. But um, also, let's not forget this Auburn team's been all over the map this year. I do think they're getting they're a lot better than they were. But it, you know, you can blow a twenty point lead to LSU. You certainly have some vulnerabilities. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is neither result would surprise me at this point. The only thing that would surprise me at this point would be if Georgia, if it was a Georgia-Alabama SEC title game and Georgia won, because I don't, after what I saw the other day, it's not that they were overrated or that they're a fraud like people do after one bad game. They're a really good team, but I just don't think you could out-Alabama Alabama, which is pretty much what Georgia's trying to do. Could they beat Auburn in a rematch on a, in a field that will frankly not really be a neutral field, it'll be Georgia field? Yeah, possibly. But it's hard to imagine them beating Alabama. But I could see Auburn beating Alabama and winning the SEC. Uh, the other big head-turner result from Saturday involved my alma mater. And I'll be honest, I did not see this coming. Miami beat the hell out of Notre Dame. 41-8. to It didn't seem like he was even that close. Miami, who was kind of scuffling its way to, to an undefeated season up till about a week ago, you know, they struggled with North Carolina, who was like one and eight. They weren't really dominating anybody or blowing people out. They were beating mediocre teams. And then as the challenge rose up, Virginia Tech, who's good, not great, but they thumped Virginia Tech. And then their best performance by far, you know, I'm watching this game. By the way, so after our game, my broadcast partner, Brady Quinn, obviously, people know Notre Dame, former great quarterback, but he's from Columbus, Ohio. 
And so we went over to his, his brother-in-law's A.J. Hawk, you know, longtime uh, NFL linebacker and former Ohio State Buckeye. Went over to their house to watch games. And, you know, so I'm in a room full of a lot of Notre Dame people. And it was just kind of nobody saw that coming. You know, I didn't think Notre Dame was going to blow Miami out, but I didn't think they were going to win. And the way they did, the thing it kind of reminded me of is the last time Notre Dame played a big game in South Florida, it did not go well. And so if you look at the combined scores of of that game in my against UM and then that the game they had five years ago against Alabama, they were outscored 55 to nothing in the first halves of those games. I mean, what was your takeaway from watching that? Was it just bad, bad Notre Dame? Or is Miami a team that could beat anybody if they play like they did Saturday night? I don't think I uh, realized until that game just how much Miami as a community, as a fan base, is all in on this team. And I, I don't know, the just and this is just me seeing it off TV, but certainly the people I know that covered the game, I mean, it was loud it was you know um i i don't know alabama or anybody else might have walked in that stadium and had the same problem it just i think notre dame walked into a cauldron into a perfect storm where miami was going to play the, its game of the year feed off the energy of that crowd the turnover chain has become on, on this galvanizing thing unlike i've really ever seen from a prop now x's and o's wise i think what you basically saw was you always knew if Somebody was able to shut down uh, Notre Dame's running game, and Brandon Wimbush had to pass to win. That was going to be a problem, and that's what happened. And then, I don't know, it was a little weird that Brian Kelly pulled him when he did, but that's basically him saying, yeah, he can't win the game with his arm. So I think that's what happened. But, you know, I guess I'd be interested to see, and they have another home game this week against Virginia. You know, if that game's played in South Bend, is, 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 the, is it anywhere near that same result, or even on a neutral field? I just think... Uh, uh, rarely will you see a home crowd and a home stadium have as big an effect on a game as that one did. By the way, and so we both covered a lot of games in the old Orange Bowl. And to me, that is whenever somebody asks what's the loudest stadium you've ever been in, that's the answer. That place, and people can show you on Twitter, oh, here's a Miami game at noon and it's 20% full. Yeah, they're playing some some mediocre opponent and UM fans and people in that community are like, yeah, we're not that interested. Big game. That place gets as wild as any place, and that was the first big game Miami has had in a long time yeah. where there was a lot of chips on the table. I Look, I give a ton of credit to Manny Diaz. You know, he was the defensive coordinator. I mean, he's a Miami guy. He went to US, to FSU, but he just grew up. His dad was the, the mayor there. He understands Miami about as well as anybody, and he's got some guys on defense. Like, I think defensively, they're close to being – really dominant with the personnel they have. And they're really young. That's the other thing. I mean, they're starting uh, one senior, and it's a lot of guys who are sophomores and freshmen. And so look out. They're getting – they're as good as they are now, they're only going to get better. But uh, I'm curious to see – you know, Malik Rozier has played nicely. I mean, for a lot of people close to the program about – a month before the season, they didn't think he would. They thought some a true freshman was going to be the guy, and it's been it's been him. And he seems to have played better and better. He hasn't made a lot of mistakes, you know. And again, I still don't. I'm still not sure Miami's good enough, you know, to to get by Clemson. 
But, you know, Mark Richt has done a good job and confidence is a scary thing when it kind of grows and grows and grows. And that's where they're at now. I mean, I think they will, you know, the challenge will be for them to come down off of that game and, and, and to keep playing well. But I don't know. What kind of chance do you give them against Clemson in the, in the ACC title game? Well, first, now? Of all, I, what you saw. first of all, let me just say, I think the, the, the safest bet in all of sports this week will be Virginia to cover, let's see here what it is, 19 and a half. Because there's no chance Miami's going to That's a noon game. There's no chance Miami's going to come out with anywhere near the energy they did those two primetime games, right? I'm not saying Virginia's going to win. I just think Miami will come out flat, and, and it'll be a closer game than that. But you know, I give them a very good chance against Clemson because I think that Clemson is not what – they're very good. I don't think they're what they were the last couple of years, obviously. They're limited offensively, but they're very good on defense. What it really comes down to is something you said before. Miami's still a very young team. Clemson is a very experienced team, especially on defense. I think in a neutral field, in fact, I would think it'd be a lot more Clemson fans in Charlotte than Miami fans. Hard for me to, to take Miami in that, scenario, in that scenario. Yeah, I, I think Miami's going to be one of those teams where a lot of us do this over the time where it's like you pick against them, pick against them, and they keep proving you wrong until eventually they don't. Either you jump on the bandwagon, or, or eventually, you know, the the clock strikes midnight. Well, so. it seems like this happens whenever a team kind of comes out of nowhere. You know, you just keep waiting for it to. Um, well, reality's going to set in at some point, and sometimes it just never does. Uh, this is going to go way back with this comparison, and date me, but it reminds me a little bit of Oklahoma's team in two thousand. Stoops had just gotten there the year before. They, I think, they went seven and five. Mm-hmm. And they just kept beating like highly ranked teams week after week, and everybody still thought, "Oh, it's it's gonna <laughs> this isn't gonna keep up." And then they went to the national championship game, and everybody picked Florida State, and they beat them thirteen to two. You know, is it possible Miami has reached that moment already in its program, where it has what it takes to win a national championship, or at least you know win the ACC and get to the playoff? I mean, at this point, they're not that far away from being able to do it. But uh, that's you gotta you know that that's taking a gamble a little bit. If you if you're actually if there are actual money on the line and you're just like, well, am I gonna take Miami or Clemson? Clemson's a proven commodity at this point. Miami's not. Uh, are you like most uh, like a lot of people I've heard from who say, you know what, it's just better when Miami is is back in the hunt in in college football because of the persona of the program. Or do you love them or hate them? Well, I think it's been really cool. To answer your question, yes. It was interesting. The other night, Miami, you say people love or hate them. seemed like everybody loved them the other night because they were playing well, Notre Dame and everybody yeah. hates Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't, I mean, the Catholics versus convicts dynamic, most people were rooting for the Catholics. You know, it, it, it's a lot different 30 years later. Miami's no longer this come out of nowhere. Outlaw looking program. Establishment. If anything, they're the feel-good team. They've got Mark Rick. Everybody loves Mark Rick. Who, which player was it who said the other night that they lead? One of the Miami players said after Mal- the game. Malik Rozier, the quarterback, so I think, said it. Was yeah. it. I think we lead the nation in community service and not the kind that you have to do. Um, they're, they're, it's a fun thing. The, the turnover chain is fun. So I know their fans love to embrace the outlaw and everybody's against us thing, but that's not how this feels. 
Mark Richt has done a really good job also of deputizing some of the former Miami players or these legendary players who went on to have success in the NFL. The honorary captain on for, uh, this past weekend was Ed Reed. Uh, I would, for my money, he would be the best leader Miami's ever had, and obviously a Hall of Fame NFL player. But um, when you start getting those guys around and more and more, and he's done that with his, his uh, legends camp that they have each year now, I think that that just gives a bigger chip on the player's shoulder and gets their chest puffed out more because they know who's watching. Obviously, it helps for recruiting, and I think that's where that's really headed too. But don't you think that was one of Al Golden's biggest mistakes? It seemed like he did the opposite. Not that he like told players don't come around, but he was just. I think maybe because of the Nevin Shapiro thing happening right at the beginning, he was he was a bad he was a bad fit. He I mean, was it's a bad fit, and, and but it also felt like you know because of that NCA scandal, he felt like they had to just kind of everything about that program's history in the past and make a clean break. Whereas Mark Richt is embracing that past, but presumably, hopefully, there's no Nevin Shapiro's running around. Yeah, it's been a uh, it's been very interesting. What do you say we, we missed this last week? What do you say we get to our shout-outs this week? I know. I feel awful. We started this weekly series, and then we forgot it last week. But yes, we've hit all the big stories we wanted to hit. Time for shout-outs. Who you got? I got Casey Dunn. I don't know if you know that name. Casey Dunn is a the center at Auburn. He started his career. He was a uh, walk-on lineman at Jacksonville State, grad transfer. Said, you know what? I want to take my shot at the highest level. Was a really good player at a good high school program in Alabama. He's listed at 6'4". I'm told he's not really – he's probably 6'2". He doesn't have the prototypical size. A lot of people want an offensive lineman, but he is tough as heck. And he has helped paving the way for, as I said, Carrion Johnson's running into the Heisman race. And this guy is, is a big reason why the Auburn offensive line and Auburn offense is going. And so I think it's a cool story when you get a, you know, we talk grad transfers a lot, not all the time. I think this is more like our buddy Pete Thamel. I kind of wrote about this when it comes to college basketball last year. He was talking about the guys who transfer up to the big programs in college basketball. And you see that more there. This was a case of a grad transfer from a smaller school who went into the SEC and is thriving. So shout out to Casey Dunn. That was a great shout out. That was a very original shout out. Uh, my shout out is going to go to West Point, to the Army Black Knights, who are 8-2 and two for the first time since 1996. And this is a program that for years and years just everybody went why can't well how come navy can be good but army can't you know when is army ever going to be good again nobody's expecting it to get back to the 1940s but why can't they at least become a bowl team and obviously it was a big step last year uh jeff munkin huge step beating navy ending that skid and then they won a bowl game and finished eight and five this team eight and two they just beat an acc team albeit a reeling acc team in duke and uh they got a chance here they played north texas big game this week and then, uh, isn't that who they played in the bowl game last year? I think it is. But, uh, they play at North Texas, and then they obviously play Navy. Chance to get to 10 wins. Yeah, and by the way, we, uh, our crew actually did, I've seen them in person. They, they only lost two games. One of them was at Ohio State. So we had that game. They're not a fun team for people to prepare for. They're, they're really well coached on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good shout-out, too, especially to – 
to give a t- tip of the hat because we know Air Force has been has been really good, and we know obviously Navy has been really good. It's 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 great to see when the other service academy rises up as it has, and I feel like they've been bowl eligible or committed to that bowl for like a month now, right? Yeah, they well they were locked into that Armed Forces bowl, and yeah, they they well, my bowl projections which come out Tuesday, um, they've had that that you know locked in for a while. It's interesting. I think at one point Saturday, there was a possibility that all three service academies would win on Veterans Day for the first time ever, but Air Force did not come through. They're having kind of a rough year, but hats off to Army and uh, glad that we remembered to do the shout outs this week. Anything else? No, I think uh, I'm actually in studio this week, Stu. We have a game in your backyard, uh, but I am in, in studio this week and I'm not with my crew. No sidelines so, for you. No, our crew. It's the it's the first time I would in three years of doing sideline where we have a game that is in my home state, California. We have my crew has Stanford and Cal, but I am summoned back to the studio, so I get a home game, and that's that's not a bad thing at this time of year. Well, it is a very, 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 very light week. <laughs> when I went to do the little thing in the Ford Pass about three games we're most excited for, you know, it was a struggle. Uh, to say the least. You, the biggest game is Michigan-Wisconsin, and then I don't believe there's another game between ranked teams. Uh, USC-UCLA should be interesting. Cal-Stanford should be interesting. Uh, but it's... it's. I mean, I'm interested in Tennessee against LSU just to see Brady Hoke back on the sideline, back in the head coaching role. If, if I told you two years ago that there would be a coaching matchup in the SEC between Brady Hoke and Ed Ogeron... How much money would you? <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable! But it's, it's just just crazy that that is happening. Tennessee needs to win that one. By the, they need to win two to make a bowl game. I'm not liking their chances, but you, hey, you never know. Maybe Brady Hoke will make it like Ogeron did last year, where they have to promote him. He doesn't have enough chance to do that, you know. I think he's, you know, he's only going to get a couple games. So even yeah. if he wins out, I don't think that's likely. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody in the MAC will hire him. He did a really good job at Ball State before he went to San Diego State. So who knows? My second shout out, if there was one, was going to be to the Ohio Bobcats, who just crushed Toledo last week, and now appear that they maybe, maybe, maybe will finally win that MAC championship that has eluded Frank Solich. That was an interesting piece of trivia to end it on, but we will do that now and roll the closing credits. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoy college football podcasts, also subscribe to the All-American Podcast with Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson, and Chantel Jennings. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Feldman CFB. Follow me. Stu at SL Mandel and subscribe to the All American if you haven't done so already at theathletic.com slash all American. So come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. We'll talk about.